This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and the managing editor at EdSurge. For my job as a journalist covering education and innovation, I often feel like I'm visiting two totally different worlds depending on who I'm talking to. I spend a lot of my time interviewing edtech company leaders and venture capitalists who are building the tools that are increasingly shaping the classroom experience. And then I spend a lot of time talking to classroom teachers and professors who are doing the instruction and research firsthand and thinking through the right way to refresh what they do to meet the needs of today's students. And often that is with tech as well. But these two groups, the business folks and the educator folks, they don't seem to talk to each other as much as you might think. In fact, both groups kind of view each other with a lot of suspicion and concern. And that can be especially true when the topic is something cutting edge, like artificial intelligence and the role it could or should play in teaching. So for today's episode, I decided to try something different and attempt to bring together these worlds. I reached out to a scholar who has been critical of AI in education and a venture capitalist who thinks AI provides important lessons for traditional education. And I asked them to come together to have a discussion. It's not really a debate, so don't think Lincoln-Douglas debate or anything formal like that. It's just a chat, a dialogue. Both of these guests, they're, they're really smart and they represent important perspectives. So I thought it'd be pretty interesting to see what they would ask each other. So here's who I invited. From the educator perspective, we have Neil Selwyn, a research professor of education at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. He's the author of the book, Should Robots Replace Teachers? And to be clear, he does not think that robots should replace teachers He's pretty skeptical of AI and teaching. You might have heard our interview we did pretty recently as an episode of this podcast. And on the EdTech company side, I invited Ryan Craig, the founding managing director of University Ventures. His venture capital firm funds EdTech companies, and he has written books about his vision of what might be coming, including A New You, Faster Plus Cheaper Alternatives to College, and College Disrupted, the great unbundling of higher education. Both of these experts focus on higher ed, but they both watch K-12 as well. And my goal was to hear their views on the broad role of tech in education at all levels, especially AI. I started by asking Ryan Craig why it seems like he and other folks at corporate ed tech meetings that I go to tend to be kind of down on human educators and making a case that tech tools are needed because otherwise human teachers are just too freeform and undisciplined. It's as if the worry is that some professors these days are just kind of phoning it in from yellowed old lecture notes. Well, uh, I'm sure some do. Uh, I, I, my view is that's, that's uh, probably a very small minority. I think most um, professors and, and teachers and instructors uh, work, work hard, um, but are, are probably working 
uh, aren't always focused on uh, the right things in terms of uh, student outcomes uh, that matter uh, that matter that matter most. Just for so, for example, we know, uh, or I believe we know. Maybe Neil will uh, dispute this, but uh, that uh, active learning uh, is um, more productive uh, in terms of student learning and retention. Uh, than a traditional sort of sage on the stage lecture uh, approach. Uh, having said that, the percentage of uh, higher ed faculty who have transformed uh, their lecture classes into sort of active learning experience experiences um, is vanishingly small. Um, uh, another area would be uh, connectivity to uh, employment or the kinds of skills that employers are actually looking for in entry-level jobs. Uh, those skills are knowable, uh, but vanishingly few faculty uh, are uh, focused on incorporating those skills uh, into uh, their uh, curricula and lesson plans. So, you know, I think it's a, uh, and, and, and the reason uh, I think that neither of those as an example are happening uh, really come down to accountability. Um, you know, faculty are accountable uh, for research, uh, and they're accountable for uh, their course uh, ratings, uh, but they're not accountable for the things that are hard to measure, uh, like uh, learning uh, and like uh, employment outcomes. Uh, and so they're not. Uh, and so while they may be working hard, uh, they're not uh, uh, necessarily working hard on the, uh, on the right things. Yeah, I guess, Neil, I'm curious what your yeah, your your response to that um, as somebody who is in a you know at a, at a university professor job, um, what your response to that critique is yeah. or that, that comment? I mean, certainly there are some bad professors who are phoning it in. Um, <laughs> bad people in every profession, so we don't want to kind of be defending teachers and defending professors, you know, um, across the board. Um, I think one of the problems is that most professors can't do what they like. And I think if they were allowed a little bit more freedom and leeway, then um, you might see some more kind of creative teaching and creative learning. So there is a big push, as um, Ryan was saying, towards kind of active learning, this move from instructionist to constructivist. But often we're seeing that's very much kind of just at the institutional level. And what teachers and professors are actually allowed to do um, within that kind of active learning realm is actually is actually fairly limited and it tends to get boiled down to just student-centered learning or student-directed learning so one of the things that was interesting what um ryan was saying was about not not doing things that, that can be measured and i would argue that there's quite a lot in education which is really important that cannot be measured i don't think you can measure learning i don't think you can measure a lot of the stuff that's really important um, in education and, and nor should you and this is perhaps where our conversation around AI might differ um, what cannot be measured what cannot be put into data and the other thing which is really interesting about these kind of conversations is how we focus in on learning and I think education is about a lot more than learning and again there's a great educational philosopher called Gert Biester who talks about learnification of everything and we're just focusing on learning learning outcomes learners learning and learning spaces he makes the point that actually a lot of education is about teaching Something is being taught to someone for a reason. And I think it's really interesting to talk about things like teaching and pedagogy and knowledge rather than this kind of abstracted, empty concept of learning. So, I mean, there's plenty that Ryan's just said that I would agree with, but there's plenty of things that I think we could have an interesting debate around. Is higher education purely about getting people jobs? I don't think it is. I think there's about lots of other things as well. 
is higher education purely about learners learning? I don't think it is. I think there's lots of other things going on. So it's it's a really rich debate, but it's really, really complex. But I know I know I know that one Ryan's gonna want to jump in on. But to back up a step, this idea between this distinction between learning and teaching, could you say a little bit more about that? Well I guess the idea is that learning if you treat learning as just being a change in your ability to do something, you can do that for yourself. You can go onto YouTube and you know work stuff out. Education is about being taught something, often by an expert, and, and you're actually there's something being taught for a reason, and often you're learning with a group of other people. So it's it's a collective process. So you're being directed, you're given a specific piece of um, kind of knowledge content, and there's there's a particular reason for doing it. Learning on it, you know, there's plenty of um, autonomous, self-directed learning software that we could point folk to if we wanted them just to kind of develop skills in X, Y, or Z. But higher education is about being taught. It's about having kind of that, that, that relationship, that pedagogical relationship. So learning, I mean, Biester argues learning is quite an empty concept. It doesn't really talk about what is being learnt, why it's being learnt, and who is actually kind of supporting the learning. So there's a lot more going on. If this was a business just about learning, then we would all be out of a job. <laughs> you don't need professors. Is the distinction, Neil, between sort of learning uh, skills and knowledge versus sort of higher order thinking, and that unless they're sort of the the learning is or the the teaching is directed for a purpose you're not going to be or you're less likely to develop that sort of higher order thinking is that the distinction so so there there is that um but the other thing that bs is really interesting about is he talks about different reasons for actually being in a high in educational context and being taught by a teacher and it's not just about developing skills so i mean there is a qualification aspect of it you're learning something in order to do something that you couldn't do before but there's also a subjectification. Um, you're learning who you are as a person. It's a kind of a journey of individual self-discovery and also socialization. You're learning to be part of a wider group, a wider community, a wider society. So higher education is about all those things. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, and in my in my most recent book, I talk about how, um, you know, <laughs> a skills based uh, 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 sort of system of learning, which is oriented around employment um, May, may may improve things economically, but uh, sacrifices uh, all of those things. Um, but at least in the U.S., where uh, you know tuition uh, has has grown uh, over the last fifty years at one hundred and fifty percent of the rate of uh, inflation, uh, uh, and uh, we've we've seen just you know poor uh, outcomes uh, of those who choose to enroll in a post-secondary institution and, 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 and those who graduate uh, from less selective uh, institutions. I, I, I sort of use the analogy of we're in a situation of triage where the pain, patient is bleeding out on the table and we need to sort of focus on the economic uh, uh, equation uh, first and then figure out how to, how to address those other uh, issues, including sort of self-discovery and serendipity and all of those things. And I you know, because I, I, you know, Neil, you may not have the, the same situation in Australia, but here, my view is that much of the social and political turmoil in the U.S. over the last decade is due in large part uh, to the fact that uh, a large swath of the population feels shut out from the dynamic economy uh, and views and colleges is, is essentially or, you know, higher education is the only uh, socially acceptable pathway uh, to those to those good jobs, and uh, you know, with with uh, it's 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 not and 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 the reaction to that is what we've what we've experienced. Um, so we need to 
uh, broaden the number of pathways and make the, you know, current higher education pathway uh, more economically viable for the people we most care about, or, you know, we may not have a higher education system <laughs> at all. Um, as that's my concern. <clears throat> no, I think I would, would, I would agree with you. And I think most people working in post-secondary education around the world would agree that post-secondary education is a mess. I originally come from a country, the UK, where the big push was to get 50% of school leavers into university. And so you have this massification of the higher education sector. And from a kind of socialist perspective, that's a great thing. Everyone should have opportunity to learn at the highest level. But it has created this kind of sector where there's a lot of degrees which are of very little value, I would guess, to either the people taking them or the people giving them. So I think most people working in higher education would would agree with that. Um, and, and in some ways, when we talk about these these other things that not to do with employment, I mean, that's a, an idealized vision of what I would like education to be, public education. So a lot of these debates really boil down to values and politics. I'm very pro-public education. I think public education as education as a public good is, is really, really important. But I realize that's not the kind of majority perspective from a lot of other folks. So a lot of these conversations are just about values and what we think education is, what we think education should be, and what we think education can be in the future. Well, maybe in an AI-dominated uh, future where uh, machines are doing all of the work and we have uh, all the money in the world and more leisure, then we will have a completely uh, publicly funded uh, higher education system. Uh, luxury automated communism. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's so much we can talk about. Even just what you were saying there about AI doing all the work. One of the things I'm super interested in is the amount of work and labor that actually takes place to get AI to even just function in a small, small scale. There's a whole bunch of labor behind the scenes. But even teachers working alongside ai technologies there's so much work the teacher actually has to do which is fascinating so it's really interesting to have these conversations and kind of nut out what it is that we're talking about here no absolutely i agree i mean the the the, the te technology in terms of uh, actual productive applications in uh you know k-12 or post-secondary education and at least in the u.s uh, you can kind of count them on you know one or two hands and uh many of those uh, as Neil says, do do require an inordinate amount of uh, uh, they all require a ton of work to uh, you know achieve sort of minimal productivity uh, uh, in terms of production of these uh, of these tools and algorithms uh, and uh, they they uh, many of them require a lot of work on the part of the the, the instructor or teacher deploying deploying them so uh, you know but again we're still very early innings insofar as we're looking at applications of AI uh, in education. We're more focused where we have a couple of investments really are on the, on the margins of this, not in the learning uh, itself, but around, you know, in discussion boards, our company Packback uh, uses a sort of AI-generated questions to help prompt and move the discussion along. Um, we have a, a, a chatbot, a company called Mainstay, that uh, uses uh, AI um, to, um, you know, help reduce summer melt uh, and improve retention, uh, keep students uh, connected uh, to uh, their classes and community. Um, you know, again, neither neither are perfect or fully developed at this point, but they're uh, arguably an improvement on what happened before, which were, you know, flat um, discussion boards and uh, un unanswered questions. After the break, how much artificial intelligence is there really in some of the edtech products that claim to be AI? And where has AI made an impact in the classroom? Stay with us. 
What do Northeastern University, Rutgers, Wake Forest University, CSU Fullerton, and St. Mary's University of Minnesota all have in common? Well, they and dozens of other institutions around the globe have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS. Gone are the days of burdening faculty with manually moving LMS content or paying for a white glove service. Both options are archaic, riddled with errors requiring a tremendous amount of course reconstruction, and both are manual processes. Introducing Scaffold by K-16 Solutions. Scaffold is a revolutionary product that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another in real time, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools using sophisticated but simple automation. Scaffold replaces what used to be a manual resource-intensive operation, transforming LMS course migration into a quick, accurate, and affordable process. Most importantly, scaffold migration requires little to no manual intervention by faculty, staff, or anyone else. To learn more about K16 Solutions automated LMS migration solutions, visit k16solutions.com. That's k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. It is fascinating to actually kind of drill down to what technology we are talking about, what's actually really in the classroom in 2022. And what I'm picking up on is a bit of pushback from AI, um, or actually machine learning and computer scientists, trying to kind of distance themselves from the term AI. I think it's kind of maybe jumped the shark, and um, a lot of people are kind of pulling back. Um, So the first question I always ask is, is this actually AI? And there was that fascinating survey from a Two years ago, I think, that found 40% of AI startups in the EU had no AI whatsoever in their product. So there's, there's a bit of kind of, you know, snake oil going on. But then the second thing as well is, does it actually work? And, and, and that's a fascinating question. Can it actually do what it's claiming to do, these, the, these products? And some of the more, I mean, the ones Ryan's talked about sound quite sensible, but there's quite a lot of kind of extreme claims being made about what AI can or cannot do. And so the question, does it work, is really interesting because often it doesn't work. And then it's, the fact it doesn't work and it breaks down actually causes more trouble than it's worth. So we're at very early stages. And one of the things I'm worried about is that we'll talk too much about the possibilities of AI and really kind of turn the education sector off some of the potential that could be kind of coming on further downstream. So in some ways, puncturing some of the the excessive hype at the moment is really, really important. Right. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, uh, I was looking at uh, companies that were using quote unquote AI, uh, for grading essays. Uh, and I still feel like that technology is still in its infancy. You know, the idea of replacing, uh, you know, human labor, uh, with, uh, AI for, uh, assessment purposes. Uh, I, 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 I think, I mean, where, again, where, where, where we're seeing productive use is AI filling a void that just where there was no possibility of, human or instructor intervention, like on a discussion board with thousands of, uh, of comments where you're never going to have a faculty member going and responding to, uh, each post and prompting, you know, the next question in order to move the student discussion, uh, along. It's just not realistic. Uh, or, you know, a chatbot, uh, available 24 seven responding to, you know, any question regarding, you know, a student's academic program or enrollment. Uh, just not gonna, there wasn't anything there. It couldn't happen without, without AI. But the idea that somehow, uh, we ought to be replacing faculty actually reading and responding to student work, uh, with, uh, with technology, I, I fundamentally disagree with. I, I can't imagine how 
that's going to be an improvement on what we have now. If the answer is, you know, faculty aren't doing a, you know, don't have the bandwidth to grade every piece of writing, then we should be, you know, restructuring how we teach or hiring more faculty or something. Yeah, the discussion board um, example is really interesting. You know, as a professor that teaches on learning management systems, the discussion board is the bane of my life because it's a very flat, empty discussion, as you say. Even if you do go in every day and respond, you don't necessarily get conversations going. So in, in some ways, adding a bit of AI in there just to kind of shake things up a bit is it makes, makes perfect sense. Um, and in fact, there are colleagues of mine in Edinburgh University that have been playing around with more creative um, interventions. So kind of chatbots that go in and ask dumb questions or deliberately provocative oh, like questions or just completely left field questions. So bad bad AI. Spark, <laughs> well, no, but that spark off really interesting debates because they found as soon as the students know that it's an AI chatbot, they'll respond to it rather differently. They'll ask dumb questions back or they'll ask things or say things on the discussion forum that they'd never say um, to their professor or to another colleague. So I think there's some really interesting creative aspects of AI. One of the things though about the whole kind of move to chatbots that's quite interesting is that, yeah, you can automate kind of, you know, low-level questions about, you know, when's the assignment due or things that a teacher would get asked every every day. What's interesting, though, is often those questions are from students. The question isn't what's being asked. They want to just have a bit of contact with their tutor and then maybe disclose, oh, by the way, I'm feeling really lonely because I'm a student that's thousands of miles away from home. And if we completely automate even something as, as, as low level as a student asking when the assignment's due, we perhaps strip away those moments of interaction where between a, a human teacher and a human student and you can have a more generative kind of interaction. So that's the worry. But on the other hand, you've got a you know, professor with a thousand students on a discussion board that's going nowhere. So nothing's perfect. And we're just trying to make things. I, I think we can never completely make education perfect, but we can make it kind of less worse than it is. Right. You know, I think, again, it's a question of engagement. So where we feel like we can use AI to increase engagement and to your point, increase connectivity. You know, we shouldn't be increasing using AI to increase alienation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm a, I agree with you there. Yeah. I, I, I do want to say one from my, you know, seat in the middle, so to speak, it feels like there's a sense, Ryan, that you were mentioning early days and, and a, a kind of optimism that things might improve with AI so that there might be a broader sense of of application. And one thing from 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 Neil's perspective and talking to him today and previously, it sounds like there's a little bit of a of a concern that that if these tools get developed, they they will inevitably be used to, you know, kind of be getting into the human side. And so why isn't, the, you know, like, where is the, so, so where is the, how do we, how do we get a discussion that I think both of you sound like now that we're all in the room together kind of want where it's like, how do we do the pros and cons? But I think sometimes maybe the, the frameworks end up being selling a product um, in Ryan's case, or getting concerned about things that maybe aren't around yet but could be, which they really could be. We don't know. None of us know the future on Neil's side. So I guess what is the, what is a way to, um, to, to increase the connection between and, and really an actual conversation between people that are in the classroom and people that are building tools? Look, it's great. I mean, I, I, um, I mean, if we had a company that was trying to develop, uh, sort of, AI to replace, you know, what is happening in terms of instruction, 
of, you know, I, I, if I was, if I was looking at investing in a company that did that, uh, my first question would be, you know, show me the use case, show me the research to demonstrate that this is actually resulting in an improvement in any kind of outcomes. I mean, you name it, <laughs> define, define what the outcomes are. Um, and I, I think that, you know, any company would be hard pressed to demonstrate that again, with the exception of, you know, cases, use cases where there's literally no engagement, nothing happening. So typically, you know, around the margins of what's actually happening in the classroom, you know, um, but if, you know, then if you were to come to me and say, we have a, and I'm not sure what this product would look like, but, you know, an AI oriented product that easily converts, you know, your typical, you know, lecture based course into an active learning, uh, experience, um, I mean, that would be, that would be interesting. Uh, we need to, we need to look at that, but it needs to be based in research. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't look at it. And, it, and Neil might say, well, what are you, you know, what outcomes can you, you know, can you actually, you know, properly assess the outcomes, the outcomes that really matter? And I think that's a good, I think that's a reasonable point. But, you know, all we can look at is what we can measure. Um, and uh, I think a lot of what ails traditional higher education is that we're not measuring enough. Um, you know, there, there are things I agree with Neil, you can't measure, but I think there are things that we can and ought to measure that if we did measure, uh, we would increase, uh, accountability, uh, improve, um, efficacy and improve outcomes. And those are the kinds of things that we would want to, uh, invest in. I don't think that anyone thinks that, uh, schools, uh, at any level, K-12, post-secondary, are going to be buying uh, a product uh, because it, you know, say it's going to re- replace human labor uh, with uh, technology. We haven't we haven't seen that in um, you know j- even just think of on- about online learning. I mean, by and large, you know, you can argue that uh, you know online learning has turned you know better on campus jobs into worse. <laughs> worst paid gig work online jobs. But by and large, it hasn't substituted labor for technology. Um, it's just changed the mode of delivery. So I don't, I don't see that as a huge, a huge risk. Okay. A couple of things there. First, I guess first, Neil, the, the, the idea of like how to have a, how to encourage more um, conversation across across the two kind of domains of, of people in the classroom and people in the tool building. And then the other, then you can respond to what he, what Ryan just said to you, if you can. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's really, really important that we have um, all of the education community focused on ed tech and AI as a serious site of conversation, but it's really, really tricky. Um, most of your listeners will feel that technology is kind of done to teachers. <laughs> teachers don't do technology. Teachers have very little time to engage with these debates, these discussions, which is why something like a podcast is much, much better than a, a peer-reviewed paper in terms of cutting through. And I think clearly we know that you can have teachers in the room, teachers in the toolhouse, as and to use your phrase, you know, just teachers actually kind of baked into the design and the development of the product and the identification of what they can do. That would be fascinating. But I think the bottom line is that technologies are sold to institutions. The customers of a lot of um, educational technologies are the administrators and the managers. They're the end users, and they then pass it on to the teachers. So in some ways, it's moving past that and making procurement of technology in a university or a school a kind of 
a political issue, but also a, a site of discussion. A democrat. If you had democratic procurement, if you actually asked teachers and students and parents what type of tech would you like, you might get different tech altogether. So I think there's a whole bunch of stuff there about yeah, we do need to have a discussion about it. But I'm not naive enough to think that people are you know will dive straight in. I think we need to kind of support people. So I think people who are in charge of budgets need to think very carefully before they purchase systems. Teachers need to really be kind of supported in working with these systems and getting to know about the technologies that they're engaging with and have some kind of autonomy over what they're doing. I would love to see teaching unions, for example, step up. If there are labor workforce issues, then I imagine it's a union issue. And also just broaden the conversation. Other flavors of technology are available. Other forms of AI could be developed, you know. It doesn't have to be the kind of big, big tech, commercial, corporate technology. We could talk about open source. There's a whole bunch of other alternate technologies that could be used in education. Um, but the, uh, the other thing I would say is that educators have a bunch of other stuff to be worried about and talking about. So technology is not number one priority for them. There's a bunch of other stuff as well. So you can it's it's fully understandable why people are not kind of talking like we are. Yeah. I agree with that. The, you know, it's a education is one of the slowest adopting sectors for technology. So, you know, if you have, you know, Joe tech entrepreneur and he is, you know, contemplating, should I develop a tech tech product for, you know, enterprise, for healthcare, for, you know, what sector should I develop it for? You kind of have to be crazy (laughs) to want to develop one for education. Because uh, if you're selling to schools or post-secondary institutions, uh, there are typically one, maybe at most two adoption cycles each year. Reference clients are really important. So you really never have a sort of, you know, overnight success or even like a, you know, two or three year success in education or ed tech. It's typically like a five or six year overnight <laughs> success story. And by that time, you know, you could have been, you know, uh, you could have created a unicorn uh, selling technology to uh, really much pretty much any other sector. So the types of people who get into uh, ed tech tend to be, you know, educators or former educators uh, who really, you know, see a problem, want to make a difference. And so, you know, I take a, a more sort of beneficent view uh, to, uh, you know, these, 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 uh, you know, ed tech entrepreneurs. I think they have, uh, good, good intentions, uh, for the most part. Uh, they have, uh, they're, 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 uh, trying to do good as, 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 as much as they are trying to, uh, uh create, uh, wealth, uh, for themselves. And not everyone is right all the time. So there is bad, there are bad tech products, uh, out there, uh, that are being, that are being pushed. But again, typically, you know, and I, I think more in post-secondary than in K-12, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll rarely see a, you know, a, a bad, a bad product or a product that at least does not, you know, solve a clear problem and address, you know, and address the issue of product market fit. You really never see it achieve scale, uh, of significance. Now, K-12 is a little different. Um, I think the, the buyers are, you know, less sophisticated and, and more subject to, uh, you know, buying from who they know as opposed to, you know, a good or the best, the best product. But I think colleges and universities are more sophisticated about that. But I think that's fascinating because I think slowness is what makes education special. <laughs> I, I think I, I was listening to Jeff had Larry Cuban on his podcast a few episodes ago. 
So Larry Cuban's a guy with like 50 years of experience as a school superintendent writing about school. And he made the point that schools are complex, intricate places, which a lot of people in the tech industry dismiss as just completely unhelpful. Don't tell me it's complex. That's not helping me. What's the solution? But I think people like Cuban, and I would probably agree with him, we keep saying that education is complex and slow precisely because it is complex and slow. Um, what I guess a good critic will do is try and explain why things are complex and then how we can work with it or maybe even work around the complexity. But just some of the things you were saying there, Ryan, I think there is a fundamental clash in values between education and and maybe the kind of for-profit tech sector. I think slowness is not seen as a problem. Um, and also this idea of scalability as well. I mean, I guess the kind of the VC private sector mindset you have to think big. You have to try and scale up. You have to try and kind of, you know, try and solve problems. And in some ways, I think in some ways that that, that maybe points some of these tech products in the wrong direction, because I, I would argue you can't scale things um, up in the same way that you can in other sectors in education. What might work in one classroom or one school or one institution is very context specific and won't then translate to, you know, a whole state or country or regional jurisdiction. That's a big, big problem. And this this glacial pace of change, as you pointed out, I think is, is just a feature of education and always has been. And it must be super frustrating for people who are trying to kind of, you know, move fast and break things. It is. It is frustrating. It's why, you know, we don't invest in uh, sort of early stage ed tech uh, companies. We look at the ones who've sort of, gotten over that hurdle, achieve product market fit and sort of help them, help them grow, uh, from, from there and do research and really demonstrate the efficacy of what they're uh, doing, uh, to the broader market and reinvest in the product and so forth. But yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug, uh, of the system. And if you don't, <laughs> if you don't like it, you should do something else. <clears throat> yeah, no, so, absolutely. Sorry, Ryan, you, you alluded to it takes a crazy person to get into this. If you're in investing versus other sectors, you could be investing in, but you are this person. And so I guess the, I do, I do wonder you just then your answer was kind of like, it is frustrating and, and you have to know it, but is there a clash of values that maybe just isn't overcomable? Cause that, I think that's really interesting. This clash of values that as Neil put it, um, that you seem to sort of agree with that there is this clash of values. So is that, is there any way around it or is it just going to yeah, look, I don't think it's irreconcilable. I think it's, you know, it's like a Venn diagram and you've got, uh, you know, areas that are not intersecting and you've got, uh, areas where there are, you know, zones of agreement and intersection. Uh, and those are the, those are the areas that we focus on. Uh, there are, there are parts of, uh, gr great large swaths of our current system of education that are not going to be, uh, you know, significantly improved, um, streamlined, uh, you know, made more effective uh, by technology. Um, you know, the 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 uh, the, the amplifies uh, of the world that aim to uh, you know walk into K twelve classrooms and replace the teacher with a with a machine. Uh, you know, we we laugh at that. Um, that's you know naive uh, uh, on the part of. Uh, the, the, the people who were, you know, uh, investing a billion dollars, uh, behind that effort. That's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. But to, you know, say that, uh, technology is in some way irreconcilable with, uh, what happens in education, I think is to put your head in the sand. It's not, you know, education is going to be changed 
by technology, uh, not all of it, uh, but parts of it, uh, and hopefully for the better. No, I would agree. I think perhaps the clash in values is, is I'm clearly a, a kind of non-profit perspective. I think perhaps the profit motive, I think, is, is the thing where it, it might falls down. I guess because the profit motive does push us towards thinking about efficiency, speed, precision, you know, measurement, all these things that you've been talking about, scalability. Um, and education, I guess, the values there, the inherent values are very, very different. So it, it may, tech is, you know, we're talking on tech now. We wouldn't have this conversation if it wasn't for tech. Tech can be used in, in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, but perhaps it's the people trying to make huge, as you said, the amplifiers of the world trying to make kind of billion dollar from it. They're, they're kind of wasting their time in a way. So I'm not saying everything should be non-profit, but certainly, I guess, well, and there's a, and, 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 you know, and, and there's a, there's an intersection there as well. I mean, a lot of our capital uh, comes from impact oriented uh, investors and, you know, uh, wealthy families and foundations and endowments who, you know, want to uh, generate a return clearly, but they may not, you know, require the same level of return uh, because there's also they're also uh, evaluating impact. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I think it's not it's not an irreconcilable um, uh, problem. No, also, I think one of the values which was probably in ed tech about 20 years ago was this idea that, you know, kind of commercial ed tech has to be kind of competitive and combative and disrupt education and get rid of, you know, the generation of lazy. Te- and I think education's a, a kind of it's a, it, education improvement, education change is a collaboration. It's not a competition. And so I think one of the great things about working with educators and working with students and working with parents and everyone involved in education, everyone's noticed these problems. Everyone's aware that things could be improved. And actually, there are lots of folk working on trying to address these problems. And and so if the tech industry and entrepreneurs and VCs and everyone else can get involved with and learn from those community members that are already involved in trying to improve things. We can then collaborate, join in and, and then see where technology can be used. But in some ways, technology is the last piece of the puzzle, not the first. Piece. If you start with the technology, then you're always going to end up no, with a, yeah. a bad solution. It, all of these sort of born in Silicon Valley replacements to what you know currently exists uh, are, are, are doomed to fail. Uh, we don't, we don't invest in those. What we do, and, you know, it's again, uh, Neil, I agree with your point about collaboration. Uh, we focus on point solutions that can address, you know, uh, clear, uh, issues, uh, maybe not solve them, but, you know, help reduce the, <laughs> reduce the pain or difficulty, um, for schools, colleges, and universities, um, where the students are. And, uh, where we feel technology can play a productive role hand in hand with what faculty are, are doing. So, you know, again, it's not, that's easier said than done. That's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's you gotta, you have to find those opportunities and, and, and they're not all over the place, but it's a, it's a fraction of what's happening. But I've been very critical of the, you know, let's try and build a parallel competitive, um, system of education using technology. I've pointed to China. And the rise of their online, you know, tutoring, you know, monstrosities and their comeuppance last year uh, with the with with the regulation as an example of, you know, just trying to do too much with technology. So I think we're clearly we're in agreement. And one of the things that people like us need to do is talk about these things more openly and more loudly and in more different places and maybe try and push back on the hype amongst policymakers who have a very kind of limited electoral cycle so they they kind of buy into this solutionism probably more than people like ryan and i do 
and push back against the hype in the media and this idea that technology will save education. I think we're both in agreement that's not going to happen. But you need to move the conversation forward. I mean, we've been doing ed tech now for 40, 50 years. So it's no longer, it should be a mature area. You know, there's enough, we've had these conversations enough in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. So I think the more we can kind of say these sort of things, the, the more the debate can be moved forward. You know, I think I might leave it at that. This is exactly why I was hoping to bring you together. And I really appreciate you both taking the time in different parts of the world, um, very different time zones to to share your perspectives. Um, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we bring you a look at a trend shaping the future of learning. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen or tell a friend about us. And you can sign up for our weekly Ed Surge Podcast newsletter with show notes with links to related resources. You can find that at edsurge.com. Just go to the the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Mon Placier. I also want to make a plug for last week's episode, if you missed it. We wrapped up our Bootstraps podcast series about who gets what opportunities in education with a look at the surprising and unsavory history of the Rhodes Scholarship and questions that have come up about how to make this most elite grad scholarship more equitable. You can find that in our podcast feed or just look for the Bootstrap series on our website. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.